gospel is Christ-centered. The gospel is from God by His power. And the gospel is personal. It's an abstract idea or just a deep theological concept to be studied and dissected. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for me. The gospel is universal. If it's going to be personal, it needs to be universal. It's not personal just for us middle-class white folks. All right? The gospel is universal. It draws people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Status, whatever, it is universal to all. All the gospel is proclaimed. It's not our secret to hold on to, but it is a song to be sung. It is a sermon to be preached. It is a story to be told. It is to be shared, and it is to be proclaimed. It is amazing if you study the New Testament and look at the word gospel and how consistently the gospel is tied to proclamation in the New Testament. Every time, just about, you look it up. Now we get to number six. All of a sudden, it's not as touchy-feely and feel-good because we find out that the gospel is not forsaken by those who truly believe. The gospel is not forsaken by those who truly believe. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, "...which has come to us indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing." The gospel is producing something. "...as it, is also do- as it also does among you since the day and understood." the grace of God and truth. In other words, he's saying, hey, since the day you heard it, received it, and understood it, the gospel was implanted and produced fruit, growing and producing fruit. Here it is. The reality is faithful believers grow and bear fruit. Todd, are you making this up? No. Remember Chris spoke on this several weeks ago when he was talking about hupakuo, and he talked about the foils of the heart. Remember what those soils got you've got the uh, hard soil rocky soil thorny soil and good soil in matthew chapter 13 verse 23 listen to this description of the good soil as for what was sown on good soil this is the one who hears the word and understands it he and yields in one case a hundredfold another 30 boy does that sound familiar Sounds just like what Paul just said in Colossians. You heard it, you understood, and you produced fruit. Why was people in Colossae had hearts of good soil? That's who he was talking to. Mark chapter 4, verse 8 says, And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Show or prove themselves as stable and steadfast. Faithful believers show or, or prove. How do you want to look at that? Look at verse chapter 1, verses 21 and 23. 21, and, 21 to 23 says, The people of Colossae, he had on this blameless and above reproach that's salvation. That's great stuff. We love that. Woohoo! But then he says in verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What, Todd? Are you saying that you can lose your salvation? Going, so no. You don't lose your salvation. Once you receive and it is planted 
and, and you start bearing fruit, it, you're, you're saved. Once saved, always saved. The reality that some people have, have hearts that are hard, that are rocky, that are thorny, and the gospel comes, the gospel comes, and, and, and they hear it, they don't really receive it. They hear it, hang out the church for a while, but they bail. They follow teaching, they follow a different gospel, they leave, they, they decide that God isn't their thing. Understand that if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, is not what you do to earn. It's not what you do to earn our privileges in Christ. It's not what we do to earn salvation. It's not what we do to earn justification or sanctification or any of those things. We can never earn those things. What Paul is saying is, if indeed you do these things, it's because then it would prove what has already happened in your life. God does the work. He saves you. He makes you alive that was dead. But he's saying, but if you continue, it shows that God has truly worked in your life and that you are truly a believer. And faithful believers are rooted at salvation, but are built up and established in discipleship. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and we're going to look at these two verses a couple of times. And here I'm going to read it out of the New American Standard because it's really explicit. And if you remember, he preached and brought this truth. It says, Therefore, have received Christ Jesus by the power of the gospel, right? And it says, Him. Okay, then we must walk by the power of the gospel. Verse 7, having been firmly rooted. Having been firmly rooted. That's what God has already done for us in our lives at salvation. He plants us into the family of God, into the kingdom of His Son. And now, you got rooted, now you get to grow. And that's what will happen in someone that truly believes. The gospel is not forsaken by those who truly believe. Number seven, the gospel was responded to with gratitude. All oh, these are tied together. Talk about, okay, what's, what's it look like then, Todd? I, I don't have to earn the gospel, but when it really penetrates a person's life, what does it look like? What happens? They're going to respond with gratitude. First, I just want to read a feel for how important this idea of gratitude and thankfulness surrounding the gospel is to Paul. He just repeats it over and over again in Colossians. This is Christ when we pray for you. This is the source. It says, to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redeemed. For as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Christ Jesus, once you've been rooted, 
built up. That building up is done bounding in giving and gratitude. Chapter 3, 18 through 17. Let me give you some understanding here. In chapter 3, Paul shifts from talking about the theology of the gospel in chapters 1 and 2. And that's what he does. Chapters 1 and 2, he's talking all about the gospel. And 1, he's got this great passage on the Christology of who Jesus is and what he's done. Chapter 2, he goes into the gospel and why it's so much better than the false teachings that are going on there in Colossians. There's a lot of theology. In chapter 3, he moves in, in light of the gospel. This is how we should be living. And so he says this, when he's talking about what it should look like in our life as believers, he, he repeats it over and over in chapters, verses 15 through 17. Listen to this. Follow along. Chapter 3, verses 15. The way we should live now. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ... Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing, praise, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How? With thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then he brings it all together in verse 17. And whatever you do, do in word or deed. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through Him. The way we live now should be saturated with gratitude. And then chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. You see, here we have despaired in our attempts to follow the law and not the gospel that we are humiliated and broken. See, human nature says, I'm going to earn what I get. I'm going get it on my own. I'm going to fight for it. And that's what we try to do. We aim for it. We seek to get it. We seek approval and we want to get these things by what we, by what we accomplish. And by nature, we want a God that will accept us of pride. That's our, our idolatry. But ultimately, when we study the law and we see what the requirements are of getting God's acceptance, remember Bruce taught on the Ten Commandments, anybody measure up to him? I can't. And if we look at God's law, we will pursue it, we will try to live by it, and we will ultimately be decimated by it. We will be humiliated by it because recognize I can't I can't measure up, I can't do it. Once we realize I can't live up to God's law, I can't get to God, I can't have a relationship with him on my own accord, we are brought down and we are broken. And it is then can't marry it up. And then while broken and humble, God in His gracious love gives us the righteousness of Christ. And unearned that we respond in gratitude. Think about the times you've been the most grateful to somebody for what they work for the work you already did. Because the government takes a chunk, right? There's no gratitude. No you want know true gratitude comes along and gives us something that they knew we needed or really wanted. It's not Christmas. 
universe. Of you. I humiliation and in Truly done for us in saving us. To be grateful, we must first acknowledge that you needed something that only someone or something outside of yourself could provide. If you could get you know how it is at Christmas time, giving getting a gift for somebody that has everything. Well, why is it tough? Because you know it's likely to simply not be that big of a deal. If they really wanted it, they would have already bought it. So you're trying to get them something that is unique or special. Hey, guys, we get on our own salvation. It has got to come to us of ourselves, something that we cannot provide. God's gospel is that someone once received, gospel is responded to in gratitude. The gospel is timeless. Heard in the past. They're historical, they're verifiable, they're historical. Death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And what has happened in the past brings us justification. I won't that, but it's a great definition, so I'm using act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteous to us and receive. It's God saying, you're not a sinner, you don't deserve, you get wrath, you don't get punishment. Instead, you have the righteousness of Christ on you. I see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is already done for us as believers. If you are a Christian, this is what has already happened in the past. Justification. You have been saved. God has saved you. He has removed you from the path of His wrath, and He has put you into the kingdom of and he sees you as blameless and righteous, just as he sees Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's us, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In other words, he's taken the broken relationship and healed it. He's reconciled it. Then he says, Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Why did Jesus reconcile us? Why did He die on the cross? Why did He do these things? This passage of Scripture, it says, so He can bring us to His Father as perfectly holy and blameless and above reproach. So that when God sees us, He doesn't see our sin, which is more vile than we can possibly 
possibly fathom. Instead, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Then we have present. The gospel is timeless because it happens in the present as well. It didn't stop. The gospel didn't stop happening at justification. It didn't stop happening of Christ. In the present, we have the reign of Christ. This brings us sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Is it the work of us? No. It is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin. That's our responsibility. It's got that side of it at sanctification. We have a role to play in it. We are to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. We have a responsibility at sanctification, but the work is done by the gospel. Just don't have time to unpack that thoroughly for us. But look at chapter 3 in verses 1 through 3. Chapter 3, 1 through 3 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, how are you raised with Christ? That's salvation. That's what God does for us at justification. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God is just a way of saying Jesus is up there next to God ruling. The right hand of God is the seat of power, the seat of authority. Seek that's where Jesus is. It says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Verse 3, if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Again, just, there's a whole lot there. But if we've died to our sins, we're hidden in Christ and we're raised, verse 1, with Christ unto newness of life. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another seeking seeing that you have put off the old self. That's the sanctification. Putting on and have put on the new self. And what's going on with the new self? Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. God is renewing us as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, as we grow in our application of the gospel, as we understand who God is and Jesus is more and more. Our minds are renewed, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Our minds are renewed and we become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And then verses chapter 2, 6 and 7 we've read before, but hey, you've been rooted, now being built up and established in your faith. And then also, it's timeless because we have something in the gospel that's going to happen in the future. That's the return of Jesus Christ. You know, because it's future, and that's just abstract and weird, and we've seen too many goofy movies about time travel, and we just don't contemplate it as this reality that we can hold on to. It's tough. But we have a future hope that comes from the return of Christ, and it brings glorification. Well, what is it? Glorification at the resurrection, at the second coming of Christ, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. We are declared righteous and made perfectly blessed. No longer do we have a sinful body. We have a perfectly blessed body in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. What happens at glorification? This is what the gospel will ultimately do for us. But look at chapter 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4 says, 
When Christ, who is your life, appears... Get a hold of that one. Who is your life? You just chew on that for a couple of days and, and, and it'll... Yeah, anyways. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We have a hope of a glorif- being glorified in eternity with Christ where we are forever perfect, fully blessed, no longer fighting sin. Number nine, the gospel is the source of life and fruit. Back to chapter one, verse verses verse six. The end of verse five it says the gospel. So we're talking about the gospel here. We're talking about what the, what the gospel does and what it's doing. Verse six: What the gospel which comes to you. As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you. And understood the grace of God. Gospel is a living, like a seed or tree that brings more and more new life, bearing fruit and growing. The gospel produces. It produces. It's doing stuff. Field, here at Glenwood, wherever, it's doing stuff because it produces, it's, it's, that's is life. It creates life and it grows people. The gospel is a living thing, which is like a seed or tree that brings more and more new good life. It's bearing fruit and it is growing. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing right out of chapter, verse six, verse six there. Now get this. The gospel is only planted in so as to bear fruit as we understand its greatness and implications deeply. You see, okay, the gospel is going to bear fruit. It's going to grow us. It's going to do these things. But how is that happening? Look at the, look at the verse, verses 1-6. As it also does among you, does what? Grows and bear fruits. Since the day you heard it, it's been doing it for a while. Since when? And you, since you understood the grace of God in truth. The deeper we understand it, the more work it does in our life. But it comes from the understanding and the grace of God. And then the gospel continues to grow in us and renew us throughout our lives. The gospel, get this. This is huge. The gospel continues to grow in us and renew us throughout our lives. Again, notice this verse. The gospel, talking about the gospel, has come to you, as indeed the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing, and it, as it is done among you. It's bearing fruit and growing among you since the day you heard it. Get this? It didn't stop. It didn't stop. We often think of the gospel as the truth that we need to recognize here at salvation. And once we're saved, once we become a Christian, great, thank God for the gospel. Now I can move on to deeper stuff. Now I can move on to other stuff. Now I can move on to other truths in the Bible. Let me tell you a secret. All the truths of the Bible are saturated with the realities of the gospel. It's there. 
We don't hold on to them. We don't grasp them. We don't impart them in our lives. We don't do anything with them without the truth of the gospel being a part of our life. We think of the gospel as the ABCs of our Christian life. In reality, the gospel is the A, B, C, D to Z, and then starting all over again. We simply never leave the gospel in our life. Because, yes, justification for what happens at salvation, but the gospel is also the path that takes us all the way into sanctification and ultimately to glorification before God Himself. So, what does this look like? What do you mean, Todd? This is kind of kind of weird. You're goofy. Okay, yeah, I'm goofy. So what does it look like? Here's how the whole gospel message might impact me when I'm struggling with my own unbelief, with my own idolatry, and my own sin. Let's say I've got company coming over for a cookout. I like doing cookouts. I like to grill. And just as I'm about to put the meat on the grill, I realize that I am out of propane gas. This has happened. Story's not necessarily exactly reality, but it's an illustration coming from things that are way too true. So I've got company coming over. And I'm supposed to be the grill master. I calculate the time I need to get to Walmart to exchange the propane tank and then get home so I can still be the ultimate grill master, the ultimate host. There's no, no idols here at all, is there? You start to see this. So I jump in my car, race down the street to Walmart, get in line to pay for the tank exchange, and get behind a woman who does not grasp the 10 items or less. Instantly, I am what? Angry. Instantly, I'm angry. Then, because I know that my anger is sinful, I feel guilty. Then... Because I remember all the times I have failed like this before, I despair. Been there? I'm angry. Oh, this is wrong. Guilt. Then it's like, gosh, this is the second time. I was ticked off at the person that turned in front of me getting into the parking lot already. This is like the third time I've been ticked off at somebody already. It all relates because I'm being slow and it's going to make me look bad in front of my company and I'm not going to be the ultimate grill master like I'm supposed to be. See how this is working? I'm guilty. So I remember this, and then I despair. I'm never going to grow up. I'm never going to grow out of this anger issue. I'm never going to grow out of my pride. At this instant, what are my options? Option one. If I'm a happy moralist, a moral, what's a moralist? A moralist, a person that strives for other people's acceptance, and even our own self-acceptance by doing the right things. Obeying the law. Obeying the laws. That's what a moralist, or a happy moralist uh, says, I will assure myself that my anger is righteous because the person in front of me is not obeying the rules like I am. I will remain better about it. You see, a happy moralist will ultimately recognize that they cannot obey God's law enough to be accepted by Him. You can't. You cannot earn God's acceptance by obeying His law. He has freely given it already. 
And if this person, if the happy moralist does not run to the gospel, they will simply begin to justify their behaviors so they can at least pretend to be accepted by themselves and be accepted by others. I'm going to obey the rules so at least I look good to the people around me at Glenwood, even though I know in my heart I've still got pride and idols and issues that God is not happy with. Option two, I don't want to be a happy moralist. That's kind of scary. It's most of us, though. If I'm a sad moralist, I will recognize that my anger is not righteous because I am not loving my neighbor and I'm angry because of my idolatry to be perceived as others as an organized, gracious girl man. That's my idolatry. So I'm, my anger is not righteous. I recognize this. I'm not loving my neighbor. I recognize this. Oh, but I'm a moralist. I need to do the right things. But I'm not doing the right things. So I will feel both guilty and angry. But now it'll go beyond that to despair because it seems as though I will simply never change. A sad moralist will ultimately recognize that they cannot obey God's law enough to be accepted by Him. And if they do not run to the gospel, they will despair, feel guilt, fight depression, and be susceptible to the false teachers with the next secret to spiritual growth. I can't seem to grow. I can't seem to get past these sins. I can't do this. Oh, you got the next secret to spiritual growth? I'll hold on to that. The next book published on something that nobody else has ever discovered out of the Bible? Hey, I'll hold on to that. It's the easy way to spirituality. Option number three. If I have been thinking about the cross... Oh, this is good and positive, right? Wait. But if I'm thinking about the cross only and not considering the rest of the gospel... I will despair even more because I will know that Jesus suffered for this sin. I'm angry and I'm mad and I have idols and I have pride and I'm guilty about that. But oh my goodness, now Jesus died for this. He paid the price for it. And if I'm not careful, I'll even think, oh my goodness, I've sinned again. I'm causing him more pain. I've put another nail in his hand. I've nailed him to the cross again. That's not the gospel that we get in the Bible. You see, in this case, we just despair because we think about how much pain Christ endured. We may even think that we're causing Him more pain. But in this case, the gospel doesn't elevate my soul. It crushes me. I don't like that option. Option number four, if I am seeking to live in a light of the whole gospel, my heart will be transformed. First of all, understand something, that the, the point of action for the gospel is the heart. The actions, the behaviors, the attitudes are a result of the changed heart. The application of the gospel impacts what's inside of us so it can then result in outward behaviors and attitudes and things that are pleasing. And as Colossians 1 says, that are worthy of God. So, 
If I am seeking to live in light of the whole gospel, my heart will be transformed. Okay, Todd, but exactly how? Here it is. Because of the incarnation, Jesus Christ knows exactly what it is to live in a sin-cursed world with people who break the rules. He used to go to Walmart and get behind people who didn't understand ten items or less. Well, whatever they had back then. But believe me, he interacted with people that didn't obey the rules. He did it all the time. He understood what injustice was. See, he interacted with people just like me, a rule breaker. But he has loved me and experienced every trial I face. He is with me. He sympathizes with my weakness. This understanding of his love in the face of sin drains my anger at my rule-breaking neighbor. I can love her because I have been loved and I am just like her. You see, to be angry at somebody for doing something wrong assumes that you are above doing that same wrong. Our anger comes out of a pride and that's sin. But once we stop and realize, no, Jesus came to earth and lived among sinful people just like me. And he loved me anyways. Because of that, I can love this other rule breaker. Because of his sinless life, I now have a perfect record of loving my neighbor. Think about that for a second. I know good chance. Taking, yeah, yeah, we all are. If I go to Walmart this afternoon, it's a whole other story. But you know what my record is before God? I have a perfect record of loving my neighbor. He perfectly, Jesus perfectly loved all the rule breakers, law breakers, and sinners. This record of perfect love for my rule breaking neighbor is mine now, and knowing this relieves my guilt, even though I continue to fail to love, his record is mine. Because of his substitutionary death, I am completely forgiven for my sin. Even the sins that I seem to fall into at the slightest provocation, God has no wrath left for me. You see, his wrath is poured out on his son. All of it. He is not disappointed or irritated. He's not taking blessings away from me and smacking me around. He welcomes me as a beloved son. Because of his resurrection, and with the resurrection is victory over what? Sin and death. I know that the power of sin in my life has been broken. Yes, I have failed again, but I can have the courage to continue to fight sin because I'm no longer a slave to it. This replaces despair with faith to wage war against my selfishness and pride. You see, if you're not careful, you can go too far one way. Hey, I have the sinless death of Christ at my disposal. I have God's grace, so it's okay if I sin. Romans 6, Paul says, absolutely not. No. The fact that we have God's grace in our lives gives us the desire and the power to obey God and the ability and power to sin. 
It's because of the resurrection that the victory over the sin has come. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 talks specifically to the idea of being dead and then raised up with Christ. We were dead and renewed. We have the very DNA of Jesus Christ in our soul and we can have that kind of power against sin if we will live that way. Because of His ascension and reign, I know that this situation is not a mere chance happening. Think about this one. See, Jesus is in charge. God's running the place. He has orchestrated it so that I will remember Him and be blessed by the gospel again. What? God wanted that lady in line with 83 items? Yes. Why? So I could be late for my cookout? Yeah. To break your pride, change your character, and so that you could glorify Him with the gospel. Yes. He is ruling over my life and interceding for me right now. I'm not a slave to chaos or chance. He is my sovereign king and I can rest. Oh, guys, and you will rest when you meditate on this idea. You can rest in his loving plan today and rejoice in him because all the stuff of this world is part of his plan. And also we have a promised return. This may be the most powerful yet, guys. Because of His promised return, I know that all the doubt, injustice, and struggle will one day come to an end. This line in this grocery store, my plans for dinner, are not all there is. Whatever the struggles, difficulties, frustrations, things that make you angry, sins you can't deal with, it's not all there is. There is the great news of the gospel. I can go home now. I can share with my family and guests how Jesus met me at Walmart and rejoiced together in His work on our behalf. Yes, we can go. And I think of what beautiful picture that is right there in a small group. And I'll be honest, when I, when I thought through this, I'm, we have over all the time. It's our small group. And I go, and nothing better could be for me to go back and say, I sinned, but know what I learned in my sin was that Jesus did this, this, this in my life. And talk about how we can apply the gospel in those instances. And now I can look at that neighbor and I can love them because I have first been loved by God. Now, lest you think I'm perfect, that's not how I normally respond. It's not. It's a process. It takes a long time. But Jesus has promised the work He began in us, He will continue until the day of glory. But it is the whole message of the gospel that has the power to transform impatient, guilty, selfish, despairing idolaters into free and joyful worshipers of the living God. The gospel has that kind of power. That's why because it can do this for us, because it will do it, and because it has the power to change the world around us, that is the central theme of the church. We say everything we do should be savored with the gospel, seasoned with it, sometimes central to it. But the gospel is always a part of it. We never get away from it. Listen to the sermons. Our pastors are great. They talk about it. Maybe not as blatant as what my lessons have been, obviously. 
the gospel is a part of it, is central to who we are, what we preach, and what we say. We don't have time to chapter 1, 23-29, but there Paul talks about the role he plays as a minister of the gospel and what is his priority. It is his purpose to share the gospel. That is why he believes he exists, and it is why church. It is not to have nice buildings we can come to in the hot summer with air conditioning, be comfortable, relax, and have some friends and kick back. That's not it. It's not a social club. It is a place where the gospel is to be sent out. It is a place where the gospel is to be held in our hearts and rejoiced over. The gospel. Paul says it is the power of God to salvation. It is the power to change our life, both at salvation. It is the power to change our life now as we try to grow, as we seek growth, as we seek to be, walk, walk worthy of God. It has the power to do that. And it ultimately has the power to bring us to heaven and glorify us for an eternity with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. You loved us even though we were sinners, even though we were enemies, even though we were wretched. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you loved us enough to choose us, to give your son to us.